It's a great privilege for us as a congregation to welcome Dr. Mark Farnham to our services this morning. Those are words that I've been trying to say for three years, uh, but in the providence of God have not been able to happen. But, uh, and even yesterday, uh, our apologetics conference that we planned to have in the morning, we had to cancel. I do plan and hope uh, to reschedule that for some time. We'll give you plenty of notice when that is, uh, and uh, we'll get those sessions that we missed out on yesterday morning. We'll do it in July. No snow. No snow. Lord willing, in July. So, um, or something like that. Uh, anyway, Dr. Farnham is here uh, with us, and uh, the most important thing that you should know about him is that two of his grandchildren are also a part of our church family, and if you've ever cared for uh, Marshall or uh, Wesson in the nursery or in the twos and threes class, you have a mutual friend uh, in their grandfather, and uh, it, because his grandchildren are here, it's very important to us that we as a congregation know how to speak about Jesus wisely and winsomely. And Dr. Farnham has given his uh, life to helping uh, followers of Jesus do just that. He has the academic credentials, a couple of master's degrees, a doctorate from Westminster Seminary. He's been teaching and equipping uh, Christian school teachers and pastors and missionaries at Lancaster Bible College for a number of years. He's been a pastor. He's a husband, a father, a grandfather. But this morning he's come to be our teacher and Mark is going to come to help us. Well, it is a great delight to be with you this morning. Um, really appreciate you as a pastor. Uh, when, I, when my wife and I were praying for our kids growing up, we not only prayed for wonderful mates, but that they would walk with God and attend good churches. So it is a joy that uh, I know you think Luke's my son. He's not. It would make sense, but Kelsey is our daughter. And uh, so when she picks someone even taller than me, I'm thinking, what's going on here? I've always been the tallest, and now I'm not, because Luke is taller than me, but uh, we are so thankful that they have a church home here at uh, Grace, and my wife is with me in the back, and uh, of course, our, our two of our grandkids are here, and uh, we are thrilled that they're here. We, we love this church so much, and appreciate many others, um, former LBC students I've had. I'm trying to see if I see any of them in here. Is Mandy Krause in here anywhere? She's skipping church. Okay, so... <laughs> Mandy was actually in the very first apologetics class I ever taught, and she and another uh, girl in the class decided they were going to go visit the local atheist group here in Lancaster, the Lancaster Free Thought Society, and they were the first ones to ever, ever, ever even think about it, and now, seven years later, I make all my students go to attend those meetings, and Mandy was the first one to ever get started with that, and uh, Jeff Mindler and I worked together at the college, and we also worked together in apologetics uh, Jeff is a wonderful gift to me uh, to, to help me and to come alongside and, and do this apologetics work. So thrilled to have him here. And I've known Jared Berge since he was uh, junior higher, probably, and Anna, too, I've known probably for that long as well. So really neat to see so many here. Uh, in the back, there is a book table. Uh, you can buy those books elsewhere, but you probably can't buy them cheaper. Um, so those books out there are are picked as really good books in different areas of apologetics. If you want to know just basic, how do I interact with unbelievers, uh, this book I, I wrote a few years ago called Every Believer Confident, Apologetics for the Ordinary Christian. Uh, now in the basement, Joel said during the Sunday school hour, apologetics for normal people. I actually had a word like that, and the publisher said, don't call people normal because then they feel like they're just 
average, and we all like to think of ourselves as special. So it's ordinary people. But if you say, I have a desire to share the good news with people and to answer their questions, this book is for you. Uh, another book I co-wrote uh, is called Talking About Ethics. It deals with 15 of the most important ethical issues of our day, and it's written in like a novel fiction form. So if you're interested in ethical issues, I have a few copies of that back there. Uh, probably one of the best books back there is a book called Taking God at His Word. If you say, how do I defend the truth of the Bible to people? This is a great little book for that. Um, Another wonderful book is Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. This is the testimony of Nabil Qureshi, who as a Pakistani Muslim came to the United States for med school and his roommate led him to Christ. And he became a Christian apologist. And uh, this helps you understand Islam and how to reach Muslims. But a lot of it is his own testimony. And sadly, in his mid-30s, uh, even after he married and had several kids, he died of stomach cancer a few years ago. So it's a powerful, moving testimony of how he came to know Christ. And then two books by a, a female author, Rosaria Butterfield. She was a tenured professor of literature at Syracuse University and a lesbian and a feminist. And uh, through a number of amazing circumstances, she came to know Christ and is now a pastor's wife. And so she writes this book on the subject of sexual identity and uh, as a Christian now, and tonight, that's what I'm going to be talking with the youth about, is LGBTQ. How do we understand and uh, relate to LGBTQ in our day and give a good Christian response and, and welcome people to Christ and also think clearly about it? So her book here is really good on that. And then she has a second book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Uh, this is one of the most amazing books I've ever read, where she talks about radical hospitality of opening her home uh, to all kinds of people, all the time, and through that, seeing so many come to Christ. She says, this is what's missing in a lot of American churches, is we view our homes as our castle. We go home at the end of the day, we go in, and no one else comes in with us. And she talks about learning to open our homes, welcome unsaved neighbors, welcome unbelievers into her home. And it's just a powerful, powerful testimony. So if any of those books can be a benefit, we don't make any money off of them. I just buy them from the publisher to discount, send them to you, or sell them to you if they're helpful. So if that can be a help, uh, please let me know. Thank you, Joel. I should actually tell you, Joel, you can have all those books, but you can't. Um, but pastors do get a special discount, just so you know. So uh, as Joel mentioned, we've been trying to do this for a number of years. Uh, many of you maybe prayed for us uh, two years ago. I was going through cancer. In the space of six weeks, they found a brain tumor, and then a few weeks later found a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma tumor the size of a lemon in my abdomen. And uh, through the fall of 2019, I went to the hospital six or seven times, multiple surgeries, came very close to death, and, and God uh, raised us up from that. So thank you for those of you who prayed us through that. So that was two years ago, still recovering from chemo. I looked like Joel. I had no hair at all and uh, was much slimmer than I am now. I was able to recover my weight rather quickly, thanks to Byler Donuts and my wife's great cooking. And then last year, COVID kept us from meeting, and we thought, finally, this year, nothing is going to stop us in freak snowstorm in March. So I'm sure we're going to continue to try to, to continue to work together in this issue. This morning, I'd like to talk about how do we answer the problem of evil and suffering? 
Uh, as we know, well know, this world is full of incredible suffering. If you've seen the pictures from Ukraine, the millions who've had to flee and the cities that are being reduced to rubble. And we ask the question, why, O oh Lord? A few years ago, I was doing a conference for a church uh, up above Harrisburg, and I got there early. It was a nice uh, sunny summer day. They scheduled in May every year. And I got to the church early, and there was no one there. And so I just walked around the property and came across a little graveyard in the corner of the church property. And uh, as I was walking along, I noticed that there were seven little gravestones that were identical. I thought, this is interesting. That's not normal. And as I walked up and down the line, I noticed that all seven of these people died on the same day. And they all had the same last name. And as I looked at their birth and death dates, I realized these seven people were all siblings, ages several months old up to 11 months old. So I couldn't wait for the pastor to arrive there. I said, what is the story of these seven little gravestones? And he said, oh, I'm surprised you haven't heard it. It made national news for a short while. And back in 2014 or 2015, uh, an Amish family up in that area um, were farmers, and the father was out at three or four in the morning delivering milk, and the mother was in the barn milking a cow, and all of a sudden one of the little kids ran in from the house to find the mother, and she said, Mommy, the house is on fire. And in one day, one moment, this family lost seven children. At the time, I almost burst into tears thinking, how could you bear such an awful tragedy to lose seven of your children in one day? And this is the world that we live in, a world that is broken, a world in which people suffer unimaginable Evils at the hands of others and unimaginable suffering and, and various acts of nature. And the number one question that is asked to Christians, the number one objection to the Christian faith is, how could there be an all-loving, all-powerful God in a world when there's so much evil and suffering? If we even begin to think of the amount of suffering in human history for the last few thousands of years of recorded human history, it's staggering. And so it is a good question to ask, how could there be an all-powerful God who could stop this if he wanted to, and an all-loving God who, who hates evil, how could there be such a God when there's so much evil and suffering? And I appreciate so much the scripture reading and all the songs that we have sung that dive into that question because it is a real question that we ought to wrestle with as Christians. And if suffering has ever touched your life, then I know that you have wrestled with it. In our lives, my wife and I, we were not born into Christian homes, but our parents came to Christ when we were in elementary school out of Irish Catholic families in Connecticut. And uh, the truth is, we didn't experience much loss until uh, our late 30s, so about 17 years ago. And in a succession of events, I was, I was um, diagnosed with end-stage kidney failure. I had no idea I was sick, and then suddenly... I'm like on my way to dialysis and death. By God's grace, he stopped that with a kidney transplant. But around that same time, my mother was killed in a car accident just a few miles from our house on her way to our house. Two years later, Adrian's father drops dead of a heart attack. I have a kidney transplant. Things are going really well in our lives for a few years. And then two years ago, we find out I have a brain tumor and then cancer. 
And all the time we're asking God, why? Why? And you start to look at your life and say, okay, is this punishment for sin? And, and we know that God does not punish believers, but he does discipline us. So we searched our hearts and, and couldn't see anything that, that we could identify as sin. And so we're saying, Lord, why are you doing this to us? And if you've endured this kind of suffering, a child born with disabilities, a, a, a spouse that betrays you and walks out and leaves you with nothing, a friend that, that walks away, children that walk away from God, parents that, that begin to uh, doubt their faith, siblings and friends. You begin to look at this world, and, and truth is, it can be overwhelming with the evil and suffering in our world. And so we have to ask the question, how can we believe in a God like this? And the truth is, this morning, we're going to address this from an apologetic uh, approach. In other words, I'm going to try to give you answers for when unbelievers ask you this question, how to give them answers. If, if I was just giving a theological answer for Christians, a biblical answer, we would dive much more into deep into theology. But I want to help, you, help equip you this morning so when someone asks you this question, you have answers. So let's notice, first of all, if you have your hand out, we must begin with an examination of the assumptions behind the question, how can there be a good God an all-powerful God when there's so much suffering in the world. Some people ask this question, couldn't God have made a world in which evil and suffering don't exist? I mean, think about that. If God is free to create any world that he wants to, why, why this world? Could God not have done a better job? Couldn't he have changed the conditions of the world? And that's a great question. Or as some might ask, listen, as a, as a flawed, finite parent. I would never treat my kids the way God seems to be treating me. So why can, how can I believe in God if he's not even better than I am? But notice the questions or the assumptions behind this question. Number one, suffering is necessarily bad. That's the assumption that the suffering is a bad thing and, and no amount of suffering could ever result in good. It also assumes this. Oops, sorry, I'm going to go back and forth. Oh, here we go. It's assumed that people are basically good and innocent so that suffering is somehow unfair. So embedded in this question is this the idea that, listen, I'm a good person. I deserve better than this. And as Christians, we need to be reminded constantly of the truth of the gospel that because we are sinners in God's sight, we deserve nothing from God. The only thing we really deserve is his just condemnation. So that when God does give us good things, we ought to realize this is all of God's grace. I don't deserve any of this. It's not because of my hard work, my diligence, my frugality, my righteousness that I have good things. It's purely by God's grace. But here's another assumption in this question. The assumption is that evil and suffering cannot result in good that will make it worthwhile. See, for many of us, all that we really care about is right now, I want my life to be the way I want it. I want it to go well. I don't want there to be problems. I want to have comfort. I want to succeed. And God should be concerned about that, right? Isn't that what we tend to think? God's there to make my life comfortable and happy. Because we have a limited viewpoint. We're just thinking about the here and now. But let me tell you something about God, your Father, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He is determined to prepare you for the next life for eternity. And the number one way that God does that is to bring suffering into your life. 
And this is why some Christians say are walking away from the faith. God has disappointed them. They thought God would do this in their life. They thought God would bring comfort and success and ease and prosperity. Instead, what God has brought is suffering. And in their thoughts, listen, if God's not going to fulfill his most basic purpose, which is to make my life easy and make my life happy, then why bother worshiping him? So some walk away from the faith. But in every one of us, there is this idea that, hey, God, I'm trying I'm trying to live for you, so could you just make it a little easier? Could you make it like the Irish prayer, may the road rise to meet you? Like we have this very sentimentalized idea of God where we want to see the the reward for everything now. And we're told over and over in Scripture that God, the Holy Spirit, is sanctifying us. And in that sanctification, he's making us more like Christ. And the, one of the best ways God does that, not the only way, but one of the best ways is he allows difficulty, suffering, frustration, pain, struggle in our lives. And unless we recognize that and embrace that and realize this is the path to becoming more like Christ, we will get bitter at God. We will get angry at God. We will say, okay, um, God, you know, even if I continue to worship you, you know, you've really blown it and you have a lot to make up for. Why? Because we assume that no amount of suffering now could ever be worth it. And yet look at the life of Johnny Erickson Tata. If you know anything about her story, as a 17-year-old girl, she's swimming with a bunch of friends. She dives into a lake, hits her head on a rock, breaks her neck, and becomes a quadriplegic at 17. And for the last 50 or 60 years, she has lived needing constant care, constant help. And you look at that and think, whoa, that's a terrible thing. And yet you look at what has come from her suffering. She has blessed the lives of tens of thousands of people around the world, if not more. Thousands have come to Christ because she will speak of the goodness and grace of God in the midst of her suffering. She has transformed the way many nations treat disabled people so that they provide access so they can get up wheelchair ramps and things like that. In other words, this woman who has suffered so much has been used of God because she has embraced what God has done in her life. She has not become bitter and she has said, I don't understand this. I don't know why you've allowed this. But I believe in you, God. I believe that you're a loving father and you do nothing without a purpose. And that ultimately is rejected in the assumption that God can't be real because there's evil and suffering. But notice also there's the assumption that there ought to be meaning in the events of the world and to the suffering of people. This is why this is such a good question to ask. Why am I suffering? Because it speaks of the idea that I believe this world ought to make sense. And if you abandon the idea that the world ought to make sense, you become a nihilist and you say, it's all chaos, no one's steering the ship, and it's all madness, so it doesn't matter what you do. But as Christians, we acknowledge there should be meaning, this should make sense. Think about Job in the book of Job. We are told in chapter 1 that he's the most righteous man of his day. So, sh- so shouldn't things go really well for him? But they don't. We're told in the book of Job that God specifically allows Satan to torment Job. And Job is in misery. He loses everything except for his wife and her faith has failed. 
She says to Job, curse God and die. I don't blame Job's wife as much as I used to. Having lost all of her children and every comfort, and now your husband is afflicted with sores from the top of your head to the bottom of the soles of your feet, and the only relief is to take a piece of broken pottery and scrape those sores. That's pretty bad. And as Job reflects on his suffering with his friends, you come to chapter 23 in Job, and Job says, if I, if I, could, just, if I could just convene a court case, if I could just bring my lawsuit against God and put God on the stand, I could, I could present my evidence and say, God, I don't deserve any of this. this. This doesn't make sense. You must change this. This is not righteous and just. And that's how we ought to feel about evil and suffering in the world. This is not the way it's supposed to be because that is true. That's the Christian value. This is not the way it's supposed to be. See, if you reject belief in God and you have an evolutionary worldview, the world is exactly the way it's supposed to be. And you shouldn't grieve when people die. You shouldn't grieve when loved ones suffer because that's the way the world works. The weak die out, the strong survive. But intuitively, we know that's not right. And every person craves for the world to make sense. Some people seek to answer this in different ways. Some non-Christian answers include this, the non-reality of evil view. Eastern religions, such as Hinduism and Buddhism and some atheists as well, uh, deny that evil and suffering are any more than an illusion. In Buddhism, we're told that you have to escape the illusion that there's suffering. And so if you hurt, it's just in your mind, just to just work toward enlightenment where Suffering doesn't bother you anymore. In fact, you really need to work on the illusion that you exist. And the sooner you escape the illusion that you exist, then you can, be, uh, and you can escape this world, which doesn't exist. I've always wanted to say to a Buddhist, okay, there's no such thing as pain and suffering, right? Okay, ho hold your thumb there just for a second. I'm going to grab my hammer, okay? You sure there's no, pain is just an illusion, right? One, two... No, that, that, that's not an adequate answer because we have all suffered pain. We all know what it's like to suffer both internal emotional anguish and physical pain. You know, in the middle of the night when you're stumbling to the bathroom and your pinky toe catches the corner of that cabinet, you know what pain is in that moment, don't you? So this is not an adequate answer. Some people hold a weakness of God view that God doesn't overcome all evil because he can't, even though he wants to. God God just doesn't have the power. And one of the advantages of this view is then you can't hold God responsible for evil. And some people hold this view because they would say, well, listen, don't blame God. You know, he's not really in charge. He's not really in control of these things, so you can't blame him. But that doesn't give an answer for natural disasters, right? You can you not blame God for human evil, but for, for others, you know, tornadoes still happen, hurricanes, tsunamis. And along with this is the free will view that man has free will and therefore God has nothing to do with evil because he cannot interfere without impinging on man's will. Again, that, that covers you for saying, okay, people are responsible for their actions and they are. But as Christians, we would also say God is still sovereign over all things. But that doesn't cover natural disasters. And what I was taught growing up, whether, it was, whether they meant to teach it to me or not, when my family became a Christian, started attending church, was this idea of Christian fatalism. Well, God's in control, therefore, 
Uh, you cannot escape suffering. You can't. If suffering is going to happen, so just stoically accept it because all things work for good. And then some would even go further and say, actually, it's a blessing. You're suffering. What a blessing. You're blessed. You should rejoice. You should be happy you're suffering. And that sounds really spiritual, but it is not what the Bible teaches at all when it comes to suffering. That is, we see in the Psalms, we see throughout the Scriptures, People grieve and they lament and they, they cry out to God and that's how we ought to respond to suffering. So what is a Christian answer to suffering? Well, it begins with understanding who God is. God is the standard for his actions. He's the standard for his own actions. In other words, we tend to think this way. We t- tend to think this is justice and then if God does this, then God has some explaining to do for the gap between what we think is the just thing, the right thing to do, and what God chooses to do. Well, that's not actually how it works. Actually, whatever God does is just. Whatever God does is righteous and loving. God doesn't give account for his answers. That's the second one. God does not need to defend his actions to us. Remember in the garden, God comes to Adam. Why? Because he is the He's the representative of God in the, in the garden. He is the leader in the, in the marriage relationship. So God says to Adam, who told you you were naked? In other words, why did you sin? And Adam says, the woman that you gave me, God, is doing this. It's the woman's fault, but ultimately, God, it's your fault. What we don't see in the text is God saying, oh, you're right, Adam, my bad. I messed, I gave you a I gave you a faulty model of a woman, my fault, let's start all over again. No. God doesn't doesn't take account for our choices and he doesn't need to defend himself to us. Think back to the story of Job. Job wants to put God on trial and Job wants to present his arguments to say, this is not fair, this is not just. But at the end of the book of Job, what happens? God puts Job on trial trial and ask him questions that Job has no answer for. In other words, what he's doing in that book is God saying to Job, you think you have all the information and you think because you, you think you have all the information, therefore what's happened to you is unjust and I owe you an explanation. And then God asked Job about 40 or 50 questions. Can you answer this one? Can you answer this one? And ultimately, Job comes to the realization, I have such finite, limited knowledge. I don't know why God has allowed this in my life. But I do know this, God is sovereign. And Job says at the end, I put my hand over my mouth because I've spoken out of turn. And God never gives Job an answer. And for some people, that's unacceptable. But we have to realize that our relationship to God is one of a child to a parent. That is, you make your kids do things they don't want to do, right? Let me ask you guys. You guys ever have to eat your broccoli at home? Okay, he likes broccoli. You have wonderful parents who have, who have cultivated a taste for good things. Okay? What's that? Okay. Um, parents make their kids do things all the time that they don't understand, right? Brush your teeth. To the kid, it's something they have to do, but they don't understand gingivitis and tooth decay, do they? 
At some point when God brings things into our lives that are painful, that are frustrating, that, that cause us grief and lament, we either have to say, I can't trust you, God, in which case now you're in charge of your life. Good luck with that in a universe that doesn't care. Or you say, God, you are my loving Heavenly Father. I may never understand in this lifetime why you're doing this in my life, but I know I can trust you. Why? Romans 8.32. He who gave his only son, if he gave up his only son, how will he not give us everything else? This is called an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God gives us our greatest need, Jesus Christ, to save us, then we can trust him for our lesser needs, including the suffering we go through. See, as fallen, finite, and created beings, we cannot understand the reasons of a holy, infinite, and uncreated God. Remember when I was in junior high school? Kids, you'll enjoy this. It was a big thing when I saw my first personal calculator. Oh, these were the dark ages of technology. You teenagers, you have no idea the life you've missed. Because in those days, calculators were big and bulky, weighed about five pounds. And when those first little personal calculators came out, we thought, what an amazing invention. And so this is how nerdy I was. All my seventh grade friends would gather around the kid who got the calculator, like, try two plus two, four. Wow, that's amazing. It got it right. All right, let's go big time here. Seven times seven. I know, we were, we were Philistines. I get it. We were uncultured. Cavemen, that's right. That's a good, good term. And here's the problem. You and I are like calculators when it comes to our ability to understand the world and life and what happens to us. Think about the server farms that run the major technology industries. These are things underground that are acres and acres long, thousands and thousands of computers, high-level supercomputers. And here's what happens when I, as a person, demand to God, explain what you're doing in my life. What I'm asking God to do is download the operating system of a supercomputer onto my calculator mind and heart. And God says, you, you, you can't possibly understand. I think I know all these things. You know this tiny little bit of life. And if I tried to explain it to you, you would not understand. So trust me, right? Isn't that what you tell little kids? Trust me, going to bed and getting sleep is a good thing. Right? If you're about to go on a trip and you've got a super heavy suitcase and the kid demands, I want to carry the suitcase, you'd say to them, you can't possibly do that. A three-year-old can't lift a 50-pound suitcase. What they can do is trust their parents that whatever they're going to need on the trip, the parents will take care of. In the same way, we realize we cannot understand why God brings things into our lives sometimes, but we can know that we can trust God because of all he's done for us. If he's given his own son for us, we don't have to know why God brought these things into our lives. We can trust him that he is good, even if we don't understand. An even better Christian answer, number four, is that God may have a perfectly good reason for allowing evil and suffering that we cannot know or comprehend. So notice that the standard atheistic view, oops, we're going too far forward here. The standard atheistic view argues that God could not possibly have a good reason for allowing evil and suffering. Yet it can't prove that assertion in any way. So the standard atheistic argument against God is this. If God were all powerful, he would prevent evil. 
If God were all loving, he would want to prevent evil. Therefore, if God were all powerful and all loving, there would be no evil in the world. There is evil, therefore there is no all powerful, all loving God. That's the argument. But that argument assumes that God doesn't have a good reason for evil that we don't understand. And again, if we understand how finite and flawed and fallen we are, how little we know, and we understand what the scripture says, that God has infinite knowledge, then that whole argument fails because it doesn't acknowledge that God may know things that we don't know. Notice 4b, the Christian answer says that with man's limited understanding, he can't possibly know whether or not God has good reasons for allowing suffering. And God tells us very clearly in his word that nothing is wasted. When, when I was going through cancer and I lost 50 pounds and was going in for surgeries and they were cutting me up, there were times I'm like, I don't understand why this is happening. But at some point I had to realize that God has a purpose for this. And I may never know it, but I am safe where, where I am. I'm safe where I am. Think about the disciples in the boat when they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. And the boat is filled with water. And if you know anything about boats, water's supposed to stay on the outside of the boat, not the inside, right? So the boat's sinking and Jesus is sound asleep. And the disciples wake him up and say, Lord, don't you care that we are dying here? And Jesus wakes up and he says, oh, you have little faith. <laughs> and then he says, peace be still. And immediately, just like that, the, the storm ends. And then we're told the disciples moved from a fearfulness of the storm to fearfulness of the man in the boat with him. See, the safest place for those disciples was in the boat with Jesus. They were safe there, even though all outward appearances seemed to be that they were dying. As Christians, we can rest in the goodness of God through the midst of suffering, even to the point of death, because God is faithful. Notice number five, ultimately, only the Christian worldview validates that suffering is genuine, yet not meaningless. So take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 11, if you would. In John chapter 11, we have the story of Lazarus, who dies. And Lazarus is, we're told in the text, Jesus loves him. He's one of his good friends. And yet, as Lazarus is sick, Martha and Mary send a message to Jesus, saying, come, the one whom you love is ill. John 11, verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Do you want to know ultimately why God allows the suffering in this world that he does? Because he is working all things out for, our, for his glory and our good. We don't understand that. Again, your kids don't understand when they're two and three why you make them brush their teeth. It's because you want them to have teeth when they get older, right? But they, they don't understand that then. In the same way God brings suffering into this world, God allows uh, evil to flourish for a while, but it is all under his control because he is thinking long-term. Think of an Olympic athlete. Think of the suffering an Olympic athlete goes through to obtain the ability to run in the Olympics, to be the best in the world. The suffering is immense. Practices and giving up sweets. I remember when Michael Phelps, the great swimmer, was winning so many gold medals, and he talked about his, his regimen, six hours a day in the pool, six days a week, for years and years and years. 
I do like his, the one part of his training regimen, he had to consume 10,000 calories a day. I'm like, I like that part of it. But why did he suffer so much so he could attain glory? And do you realize, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that God will bring a measure of suffering and grief in your life? Each person, it's different for your good and for his glory. And someday as a believer, you will look back if God explains this to us in eternity and you will say, thank God you brought that into my life. That was good for me. It didn't feel good. I didn't like it at the time, but there was a reason for that. So Lazarus dies. Notice in John eleven five. 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Do you notice that? Jesus loved them, so he stayed longer and let Lazarus die. That doesn't fit our conception of how God's supposed to work, right? God's supposed to come before someone dies and heal them. And Jesus says, no, down in verse 15, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. In other words, God has a greater purpose. Do you realize this? God has a greater purpose for your life than just comfort, than just ease. Why? Because we all know when things are going really good, our interest in God plummets, right? What do I need God for? All my needs are provided. I'm in good health. There's no problems. Everyone I know and love is safe. Why do I need to pray? And God wants us to learn to be dependent upon him, to love him more. So he takes things away from our lives and he adds other things to us. And in the process, we turn to God and we say, Lord, I need you every day. And God says, that's where you're supposed to be. And if you think God is there for your comforts because you have a different vision of God than what he reveals about himself in Scripture. So Jesus goes, we're told in verse 17, when he came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, notice very carefully, both these sisters say the same thing to Jesus, but he reacts differently. To Martha, or Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha, someday this is all going to be made right. And she says, yes, I know, Lord, in the last day he will rise again. And then Jesus said, oh, no, I'm not talking about the end of time, Martha, because the resurrection is me. I am the resurrection and the life. Basically, he's telling Martha, you need, you need some truth to comfort you. You're, you're thinking right now that this is it, and Lazarus is dead, and you'll never see him again until the final judgment. I'm telling you that I am the one who raises people from the dead, and I'm here now. Martha needed a ministry of truth. And sometimes when people ask this question, how could I ever believe in God with the world, the state that's in, we need to give them the truth about who Jesus is. And that God is using even the evil of this world for good. God is sovereign. He's in control. But shortly after that, Mary comes out. She says the same thing to Jesus in verse 32. Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Sometimes when people raise this issue, they need you to put your arm around them and say, I am so sorry that this happened to you. My heart is breaking for you. I have no words. I don't know why God is allowing it, but I want you to know I care. That's exactly what Jesus does. He gives Mary a ministry of tears. Martha, a ministry of truth. Mary, a ministry of tears. And yet, because of who Jesus is, that's not the end of the story. And when we share the truth about Jesus, we need to let people know, listen, whatever you're going through, whatever you're suffering right now, the God who loves you and made you and is calling you to believe in him can rescue you from trouble. And even if he doesn't in this lifetime, he can turn it for glorious good eternity. Notice what we're told in verse 33. Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. This word deeply moved is a powerful word. It means Jesus raged, bellowed. He went something like this. Oh, why? Because death is our enemy. And Jesus comes and he sees all this sorrow, all this weeping. And he's like, oh, I hate death. And that's the reason he came to conquer death, to die and to rise again so that we would not have to die forever. And of course, you know the story. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead as a picture of how every one of us who believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior will someday be raised from the dead to eternal life and eternal bliss. So notice number five, then ultimately only the Christian worldview validates that suffering is genuine and not meaningless. See, some people object to God because they're suffering in the world, but I often tell them, okay, let's say there is no God. Conditions haven't changed. Now you just have no hope. So you can either take God, you can either take suffering in this world with a God who has promised to comfort you in suffering and a promise to make it eternally right, or you can reject God and now you have a world in which there's no hope. And here's another thing. None of what's suffering in this world means anything. That's what you're left with if you reject God. None of the suffering in this world means anything. No evil person will ever be judged. No, no person who's ever lost anything will ever have it restored. But by believing in the sovereign God who gave his son, all those promises are true of us. So notice then, we are told in the scriptures that God grieves over evil and suffering. That's 5a. Just as Jesus weeps before the death of Lazarus, even though he's about to raise him from the dead, right? Think about this. I would think Jesus would stroll into town. Hey, hey, everybody calm down. I'm here. You know, and then he did something like, ka-chow, and raises Lazarus from the dead. He doesn't do that. Instead, he identifies with the suffering of these people and shows this is the heart of God. When you suffer, God grieves with you. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of you. As we're told in Hebrews 4, we don't have a high priest, Jesus, who doesn't know what suffering's like. No, he has suffered more than any of us. And he comes alongside of us and provides comfort. We're told in 2 Corinthians 1, God is the God of all comfort. And I can tell you and testify, having gone through all that we've gone through, that in the midst of the deepest sorrows of our lives, a couple days after Christmas in 2019, I was in the hospital again for the umpteenth time. 
going through chemo. My body was just racked and just empty, no immune system whatsoever. I get hospitalized yet again, and I'm doing worse each day I'm in the hospital, failing, things going bad. Finally, the surgeon comes in, he says, something's wrong with you. We don't know what it is, but if you see me again today, we'll be rushing you into surgery. A few hours later, he shows up with the surgical team. He says, I don't know if you're going to survive this surgery because you have no immune system, and if you get an infection, there's not much we're going to be able to do. So kiss your wife. He didn't say this, but he meant kiss your wife because this could be the last time. And can I tell you that such a peace came over me because I knew that no matter what happened, God's in control, and he will turn it for good. And only those who believe in Christ have that assurance. God grieves over evil and suffering. And God himself experienced the greatest suffering to ensure an end to suffering. That is, God hung on the cross. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he cries out to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God the Father pours all his wrath against sin upon the Son, and he endures it for us, even though he was innocent. Listen, if God has done that for you and me to save us, then whatever other suffering comes into our life, I can rest assured that it is not meaningless, it is not capricious, that God is doing this for a reason, and someday I will praise him. I will tell you this now, and my wife would attest to this, I am so thankful God put us through what he did with cancer. Because it changed us. It changed us radically. So we are not the same people. Now, if you'd asked me beforehand, hey, would you like to grow a lot and make an impact, but it's going to take suffering? I'd be like, nah, that's okay. I'm fine the way I am. Like, who of us wouldn't want to do that? But having gone through that and being drawn closer to God, I would tell you that was such an amazing thing God did through that awful suffering to make it worth it so that I would not change the past now. Notice finally then ultimately only the Christian worldview has grounds to call evil what it is. See, if you don't have a Christian worldview, all you can say is about the Russian invasion of Ukraine or the cancer that a friend gets. You can say, I don't like that, but you can't say it's evil. You can't say it's, it's bad. Why? Because you have no standard to judge it by. Only if Christ is true and the Christian worldview is true can you say there is definite evil in the world and someday God will judge it. Why? Because God hates evil and has nothing to do with it. God does not bring evil, but he does bring suffering. And can I tell you the single most comforting truth through all of our difficulty in cancer and kidney disease and transplant was that God is sovereignly doing this in my life. God has ordained this in my life and I will not suffer one second beyond what God has decreed. And I am the safest right here in God's will through this suffering than I am anywhere else. That was such a comfort. I could lay there in agony at times. I could lay there in fear and say, this is terrifying, this hurts, but God, I know you're in control. I'm safe. Give me, give me peace and comfort. Evil is the enemy of all that God has made. That is, someday God will conquer evil. See, no other worldview, no other belief system has evil being destroyed, death and hell being thrown into the lake of fire. That doesn't exist if you reject God. Non-Christian views tend to minimize evil or fail to recognize it as evil. And ultimately then, God ultimately 
overcame evil by the death of his son? The answer goes back to the gospel. Jesus suffered what we deserve so that we would never have to. If we will simply repent of our sin, confess that we are guilty before God, we don't deserve his grace, and believe in him as our Savior, we are given eternal life. And all that Christ suffered on the cross on our behalf is forgiven. And the righteousness that Christ displayed in his life and death is imputed to our accounts. This is the answer to the problem of evil and suffering. Let's bow our heads and pray. Oh God, you are good to us, even in the midst of this pain and suffering that you bring into our lives. You don't do anything without a purpose. You have already declared your intention to make us like Christ. So help us, Lord, when we suffer, to rest in you. We don't understand sometimes. It doesn't make sense, and yet we trust you because you are our God. And if you gave us Christ, you will give us every other good thing. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who is suffering, who is grieving, who is lamenting, that they would find comfort in your promises. I pray if anyone's here today that doesn't believe in you, that they would realize apart from you, evil and suffering will be all that they will ever experience in the next life. But you desire that all men be saved. And I pray that you would bring them to repentance and faith in Jesus so that they might have eternal life. Oh God, comfort our hearts in this broken world through these great truths. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.